Let us pray. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. The first reading today is Psalm 4. Confident plea for deliverance from enemies to the leader with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God, of my right. You gave me room when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. How long, you people, shall my honor suffer shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the faithful for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. When you are disturbed, do not sin. Ponder it on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, oh, that we might see some good. Let the light of your face shine on us, O Lord. You have put gladness in my heart, more than when their grain and wine abound. I will both lie down and sleep in peace. For you alone, O Lord, make me lie down in safety. The word of the Lord. Back to the basics. That's what I told you. Uh, it's the journey that I've been on personally as a pastor, uh, as someone wants to live a life of prayer, a life of faith. Back to the basics. What's essential? Back to the basics, though, is also the journey that together we've been letting St. John lead us on during this Easter season as he guided us through his little letter of 1 John, way at the back of your Bible, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John Revelation. It's really near the end. John started, you'll recall, with this rambling reminder that square one in our life of faith is fellowship. Fellowship with the Father and the Son, fellowship with God, a fellowship, a, a relationship, a communion deconstructed by sin, but that has been reconstructed, repaired through the love and righteousness of Jesus, our advocate. Then John went on to say that that fellowship with the Lord is actually meant to affect all our other fellowships in life. So that if we're going to say, I know the Lord, We've got to then walk that talk, remember? Letting the implications play out in the way we relate to one another as Christians and the way we relate to the world. Well, now, now John wants to have what we might call a DTR conversation. You know what this is? Sometimes couples have to have a DTR, define the relationship. John says, hey, if you're in this relationship with God, let's define some things. 
let's ask, what does this really mean for us? What does this really mean for who you are, for who we are? Listen to how John begins to unpack that as you listen carefully and well for God's word to us from the book we love. See what love the Father has given us. That we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us as such is because it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet been revealed. What we do know is this. When he is revealed, we will be like him. For we will see him as he is. And all who set this hope on him purify themselves just as he is pure. Everyone who commits sin is guilty of lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he was revealed to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Everyone who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. Everyone who commits sin is a child of the devil. For the devil's been sinning from the beginning. The Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Those who have been born of God do not sin because God's seed abides in them. They cannot sin because they've been born of God. The children of God and the children of the devil are revealed in this way. All who do not do what is right are not from God. Nor are those who do not love their brothers and sisters. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, once again, we lay our lives open before your open word, asking in the season of Easter that you would do for us what only you can in the power of your Spirit, which is to make this a word for each and every one of us here today and a way in which we know the voice and the presence of the living word, the risen one, Jesus, in our midst. And so we ask this in his name. Amen. Who am I? That's the title of a poem by the late Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Many of you know, because I've talked about him, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German theologian, pastor, leader, uh, who lived and worked during um, the Nazi regime in Germany. He was eventually 
imprisoned and ultimately executed for his opposition to the Nazis. But while in prison, Bonhoeffer continued to write. And one of the things he wrote was this poem, Who Am I? I think I've shared some of it with you before. Who am I? They often tell me, I stepped from my cell's confinement calmly, cheerfully, firmly, like a squire from his country house. Who am I? They often tell me I used to speak to my warders freely and friendly and clearly as though it were mine to command. Who am I? They also tell me I bore the days of misfortune equably, smilingly, proudly, like one accustomed to win. Am I then, really, that which other men tell of? Or am I only what I know of myself? Restless and longing and sick like a bird in a cage, struggling for breath as though hands were compressing my throat, yearning for colors, for flowers, for the voices of birds, thirsting for words of kindness, for neighborliness, tossing in expectations of great events, powerlessly trembling for friends at an infinite distance, weary and empty at praying, at thinking, at making, faint and ready to say farewell to it all. Who am I? This or the other? Am I one person today and tomorrow another? And Bonhoeffer continues for several more lines, but you hear the wrestling. Continuing to wrestle with this question of identity. Who am I? Really? This or the other? One person today, tomorrow another? Who am I? He wrestles with the question. And there's something, there's something of that wrestling we know, isn't there? I mean, we see it even in our favorite TV shows. Uh, Even the comedies, perhaps especially the comedies, characters wrestling with a sense of identity, asking, who am I at my core? Am I a rich person caught in a small-town America, or am I actually poor interiorly and being lavished with the riches of this loving community? Who am I? If you got that TV show reference, you can tell me after... Uh, We know something about this wrestling. We know it maybe in a friend, a brother, a daughter, sorting through the strata of life, jobs, changing, relationships, sexuality, asking, who am I? We know something of that wrestling. Maybe um, maybe if we pause long enough amidst all our appointments and programs and the things that occupy our minds, maybe we even know something of that wrestling within ourselves. 
which is maybe why we don't always take long pauses, because it can be a kind of hard thing to wrestle with. Who am I, really, this or the other? One person day, tomorrow another. Who am I? There's no shortage of answers to the question. I mean, answers are tossed at us from all different directions all the times, and, and usually they're tied to our occupation, farmer, prisoner, teacher, student, or our age, old, young, in between, or our income, rich, poor, comfortable. That's who you are. Sometimes the answers to that question, who am I, even come prepackaged with a side of scorn. Illegal, redneck, uppity, that's who you are. But there's no shortage of answers to the question. No shortage of answers tossed at us. And you'll note that while some of those answers may actually ring true to a certain extent, they're all pretty impersonal. I mean, they're all basically based on what you do, what you make. That's why the ones that touch us closest are the most personal. Mother, friend, that's who you are. And those are also the ones that can leave us feeling the most wounded. It doesn't really matter whether you're young and learning your way, or a 30-something making your way, or a senior who's come a long way. At some point along the way, it seems we're either actively trying to dismiss that wrestling or engage in it. Who am I, really? And so see, it's into that wrestling ring, into that match, that that Pastor John wants to throw an answer. And not just another answer, but the answer that might stand at the center. The answer which would then apply and re reshape how you interact with all these other things, all the people that you know, all the things that you do, all the money you make or don't make. John wants to give another answer to the question. John wants to say, child. Who am I? A child. Who are we? What are we? Children. You heard John say this, right? Verse 1, see what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are at the core. If we're going to go back to the basics, one of the lessons we need to learn is this. We need to learn that a life of faith begins in fellowship, and that fellowship gifts upon us a new and primary identity, children of God. Which is to say that when God looks at you, God does not just see a retiree or a banker, or a janitor, although you may be, when God looks at you, God does not just see old, young, although you may be, 
when God looks at you, God does not just see another soul saved from wrath. There's nothing so disgustingly impersonal about it. When God looks at you, God looks in love and sees and names you child. See what love the Father has given us that we should be called children. In fact, John seems to suggest that this is one of the primary ways that God evidences his love and actualizes it with us by adopting us as children. See what love? Children. Because God so loved the world, in the fullness of time, he sent the Son straight from his heart in the power of the Spirit to share our humanity, to live our life faithfully for us, to die on the cross for us, to rise for us, to be so associated with us as our brother that we now share his title and identity as children of the Father, children of God. So, on the day of resurrection, Jesus can say to Mary Magdalene, go and tell my brothers, I'm going to my God and your God, to my Father and your Father. So, when Jesus teaches us to pray, he says, pray in this way, our Father, because you're a child. It's not just a metaphor. It's not a precious moments motto, child of God. It is, it is an identifier and an answer to that question we wrestle with, who am I? Beloved, John says, you are God's children now. Amidst all the other wrestling we do with what we do and what we make and who we know, John wants us to know, the gospel wants us to know, this primary thing at the center of everything, this which redefines the relationship with everything else, you are children of God. That's how God knows you now in Christ. And the sermon could stop there. And maybe on a communion Sunday it should stop there. But John doesn't stop there. John then goes on to say there are implications to the identity. He begins to spell out implications to your adopted identity as children. There are implications to your identity as a child of God. John names two of them. A likeness and a license. First, the likeness. John says, look, if you and I and we have been adopted as children, then we are meant to grow in a likeness to our Lord and brother, Jesus. I have a brother-in-law who was born and raised in Colorado. Uh, lived in Colorado his whole life, but several years ago married a wonderful woman from Wisconsin. And something funny has started to happen that all of us have noticed in the last few years. My brother-in-law has started to say funny things, like, you know? <laughs> I was driving down the road, you know? Which doesn't sound like anyone from Colorado, if you don't know. And he started to like funny things like cheese curds. 
Maybe he's even dreamed of being a cheese head instead of a Broncos fan. I don't know what's happening. Well, you know what's happening, right? He's started to resemble, he's started to have a likeness to the woman he loves. Even to the point of sharing in some of these speech patterns. Some uh, studies even show that when couples are together for a really long time, or friends know each other for a really long time, their faces begin to resemble one another. To resemble the person they looked upon for so long. And there's something about that that John is saying here. When he says, we are God's children now, what we will be has not yet been revealed. What we do know is this. When he, Christ, is revealed, we will be like him. For we will see him as he is. John's saying, look, one day we're going to see the Lord. Not just with the eyes of faith, but like, really? And in looking upon him, whom our heart has loved, in gazing upon him, we will be transformed to share in his likeness, to resemble him, to share in his glorious humanity. What that fully is going to look like, we don't know. It hasn't been revealed. But because we know that is our end, that is our goal, that is our future, then the children of God ought to have a growing resemblance to the Son of God. Over our lifetime, we are meant to take on characteristics of our elder brother and Lord Jesus. That's an implication. If you're a child of God, then you will grow in likeness to your Lord and brother, Christ. Which leads right into the license then. The second thing John wants to say immediately is that if you've been adopted as a child, if you're to grow in that likeness, then you know your adoption papers are not a license to now just live however you want, do whatever you please, keep on spinning out the same old sins. Rather, if you've been adopted, that's a license for you to live a good and right and beautiful life like Jesus. John says it in a couple different ways. Here's one of the ways. No one who abides in him, Christ, sins. Really? No one who has, no one who sins has either seen him or known him. And then he says it again. Everyone who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. Everyone who commits sin is a child of the devil. He's pretty straightforward about this. Now, here's what John doesn't mean. He doesn't mean if you're really a Christian, I mean the real deal, you'll never struggle with sin ever again. And if you do, (laughs) please leave right now. No. John knows the story of David and Bathsheba. John knows the story of Peter denying his friend and Lord Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times. John knows sin clings closely. He's not unrealistic about this. He's very realistic. John knows that. And so he doesn't mean that if you belong to Christ, you will never deal with sin again. He does mean, rather, that if you're a child of God, you won't keep practicing the same patterns of sin without a care. You won't keep walking down the same paths that have tripped you up again and again. You won't just keep 
stop not cooperating with the Spirit and growing in faith and in hope and in love, staying the same as you were 30 years ago today. There should be change. I mean, think about it. If, if Kevin Freed was going to buy a new piece of equipment for the farm, and Buck approved of the purchase, of course, and they saved up, and they looked at it, and they researched that piece of equipment, and they were sure this was the one, and then on the day they bought it, they stopped caring about it. Stopped worrying about how to keep it up. Stopped worrying about how it would operate. Just used it however he wanted. Would that make any sense? No, no, of course not, right? You're going to keep up that piece of equipment so that it continues to work for the purpose which you've intended it. Uh, if, um, if Betsy Quimby, Alan's daughter, right, was going to accept one of these invitations to a college she's applied to, if she was going to accept that and she went away and the classes started, would it make sense for her on that first day just to stop going to class unless she really felt like it? To, to only turn in the assignments that were interesting? I mean, she's already in the university, right? So... Does that make sense? No? Okay, thank you. Somebody's tracking, right? No, of course not. She's going to apply herself to the new situation at hand. If you have a new kid, and you've read all the books, and you've taken the birthing classes, and you've learned about sleep cycles, on the day the child is born, does it make sense for you to stop caring about how you're going to parent? I mean, you already have the child. Why worry now? No, right? You worry even more. So John says, if you're adopted as a child of God, does it make sense for you to keep living as an orphan from the halls of hell? To keep spinning out the same old sins. To keep living a life of lawlessness, which is rebellion to what God loves and what God wants. John says, no. <laughs> That's not only foolish, but it actually implies you don't really know the one you say you love. And you don't really care about. There ought to be a change over time. God in love names us children, and nothing will change that on God's part, but we can reject it. We can dismiss the love that has given us a place at the table and bathed us and, and speaks to us in tones of love. And if we keep just practicing the same sins, if we keep just walking the same ways, if we never seek growth, in holiness, in morality, in relation to God, that's dismissing the love. And John suggests instead that we don't do that, but that we receive our adoption papers as a license to live a good and right and beautiful life like Jesus, who has already gone before us and done this. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this poem, Who Am I?, and it ends like this. Who am I? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. Whoever I am, thou knowest, O God, I am thine. I am yours. I am a child. Beloved, we are God's children. Now, 
What is one way you could live into the implications of that identity this week? Write it down. Put it in a place you're not going to recycle it. And then pray the Holy Spirit will help you to do that. Children. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.